Welcome to the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Michelle Glower, a CIIS professor who researches cities and food systems and the contemporary institutions with which they interact. Her talk, which explores how our food choices affect the world, was recorded on March 2nd, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, please find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. We eat our daily bread without being conscious of the massive loss of topsoil diversity in farm communities and its production. We happily munch on hamburgers without a thought to the forest and prairie being destroyed for cattle grazing or the immense cruelty in rising and slaughtering of the animals. Mothers continue to prod their youngsters to eat their vegetables, unaware of the pesticide poisoning of our waters, farm workers, and wildlife that is involved in their production. This distancing and ignorance makes us all unintentionally complicit in the eco-crimes and social devastation caused by current agriculture. In this way, industrial food creates a moral as well as environmental crisis. So I start with this quote to ground us in what I assume many of you who are coming to this talk um, are already aware of, which is that agriculture and our broader food system has developed in ways that are having devastating consequences, both for the people and the planet. And it can seem like a problem insurmountable, a catastrophe beyond the scale of intervention. But what I want to talk to you about tonight and focus on is how brave and committed people are developing communities of action to make change and how their work can connect to your daily life. So does it matter what we eat? Do our individual actions matter in a system so large with so many problems? I argue yes, but not as consumers voting with our dollar, but as communities and collectives of people making a difference at multiple locations in our food system. So tonight I'm going to be telling you the stories um, to explore these key issues and efforts of, in food politics of three people living in Santa Cruz County. And I'm going to start with the strawberry. So we'll look at these individuals' relationship to the strawberry and ask how they came to understand a set of problems in their relationship to this food, and then ask how are they working to change and transform these problems with others in community. So the first story is of, a woman, uh, is of a woman named Sally. She's an elementary school educator in Watsonville, California, and her efforts to improve the nutritional and ecological landscape there. The second is of Sam, a Santa Cruz resident committed to working with Watsonville residents to fight hunger and a broader set of social injustices relevant to the farm worker community. And then third is of Emilio, a former campesino become restaurant worker and now retired who has worked to keep his uh, relationship to cultivation across decades and borders. So in telling these stories, I'll also be sharing the histories and trajectories of contemporary food movements as well. These are stories of movement commitments and framings, including community food security, food and environmental justice, and food and land sovereignty. And all of these stories come out of my research and my personal experience in Santa Cruz County. By focusing on these stories close to home, um, I hope to invite you to think about your everyday, the the everyday nature of this work and your potential relationship to our geography in the region. For those of you that don't know, Santa Cruz County is uh, just over the mountains from San Jose, so just an hour and a half away. My approach of critical and engaged ethnography means that these stories are for me both personal and part of my teaching and writing. So let's begin with the first story. I want to introduce Sally. She works at an after-school program in Watsonville um, where she works with youth and does nutrition education. The school district is a majority Latino school district with many students being um, coming from primarily Spanish-speaking households. Sally works with students to cultivate a positive relationship to food and nutrition through a variety of activities like uh, recipe making, uh, making healthful smoothies and cooking activities and developing school gardens. 
She finds uh, strawberries inescapable in her work. In a recent article that she wrote for Modern Farmer magazine, she states, I remember the first time I heard Strawberry Fields by the Beatles. I imagined beautiful rolling hills of lush strawberries adorned with butterflies, shady trees, and blooming flowers. It wasn't until that I moved to the central coast of California, a big strawberry-growing region in a state that grows 88% of American-grown strawberries, when I discovered that the reality of strawberry production was less idyllic than I thought. So Watsonville and Salinas um, uh, account for almost half of the state's strawberry production in California, and that's in acreage and production. That's about 45% of strawberries that are consumed nationally are grown in this region. So the California strawberry industry in this region rose quickly to a position of national prominence um, after World War II. Before, war, before the war, California produced only about 4.2% of strawberries nationally on only 3.4% of the acreage. By 1953, that had increased to 61% of strawberries nationally. And then by 1988, to 84%. And today, about 88%. So between 1946 and 1988, the state's yields also rose greatly from about 3.7 tons per acre to 24.2 tons per acre. Um, so that's a large rise in productivity per acre for strawberries. Due to their fragility, this crop has to be, um, it, it requires a significant amount of labor input. Uh, you need farm workers engaged with strawberry production. The harvest cannot be mechanized because of the fragility of the crop, um, because of bruising. Workers are required throughout the season because they need to pick the strawberry on the exact correct day because of perishability. And then in order to encourage the plant to keep blooming throughout the season, to keep flowering so it'll keep producing strawberries, there have to be people that are picking the berries that even aren't going to go to market to encourage the plant to continue producing. So let's return to Sally. And we can see um, strawberries are important to her and her work for two reasons. First, the industry employs many of the parents of the children that Sally works with in her after-school nutrition programs. And the second that it's, is that it's a major land use in the area, as we've already heard about. So we'll come back to the question of employment with the second story. But first, let's look at how Sally understands the issues involved with strawberry production as a land use. One of the major contributing factors to the jump in productivity of strawberry yields in the post-war period was the introduction of chemical inputs uh, that could, that a series of pesticides to the production process. So in an NPR interview, a strawberry grower, Darren Gee, described that Fusarium wilt is like the great white shark of the soil. It's floating around in there, and then it just gobbles up your plants. So Gee's quote demonstrates the anxiety of growers in the region of the potential consequences of damage uh, caused by this soil disease. Fusarium wilt is the main target of pesticide use in strawberry production in this region. And there's really top, there's a top five fumigants that are used on the soil uh, to control for this disease. Those are methyl bromide, which was banned in 2005 and then phased out, um, finally ending last year. Uh, Telon, which is a carcinogen. Methyl, oh, I mentioned methyl bromide. Chloropicrin, which uh, was a chemical weapon, uh, tear gas used in World War I, and now it's used on the fields. And then uh, metasodium and metapotassium. So in 2012, Monterey County was the sixth highest pesticide use county in the state, applying more than 9.2 million pounds of agricultural pesticides. And over half of these came from just these top five fumigants. Uh, Santa Cruz County that same year applied 1.7 million pounds of agricultural pesticides with 80% coming from those top five fumigants. And in Santa Cruz County, you only have agricultural production in the southern part of the county in Watsonville, and, so, and that's um, in strawberry production. So the use of these chemical agents have impact on water quality, on the surrounding ecosystem, on workers in the fields. But for Sally, there's another impact that demands our attention. Cesar Chavez, whose last fast attempted to draw attention to the dangers of pesticides, was quoted as saying, in the old days, miners would carry birds with them to warn against poison gas. 
Hopefully the birds would die before the miners. Farm workers are today's canaries. Farm workers and their children demonstrate the effects of pesticide poisoning before anyone else. So it's the children of farm workers and those not directly in the industry but in the surrounding community um, that are students in Sally's school that she's concerned with. She's worried about the acute vulnerability of their developing minds and bodies in the face of pesticide exposure. So pesticides can drift for miles. It's not just the site of application that's of concern. In Monterey County just 10 years ago in 2005, a chloropicrin drift incident caused hundreds of to experience burning eyes, nausea, vomiting, and difficulty breathing. A scientific study that was published in the, Agro, uh, the Journal of Agri-Medicine found 324 people reporting symptoms of exposure. Uh, and cases occurred between 0.36 and 2.89 miles from the site of application. So for these researchers, it meant the use of irritant agricultural fumigants near residential neighborhoods can produce a risk of illness for distances more than two miles from the site. So in addition to exposure during major events like the one I just mentioned, teachers are concerned about the chronic and subchronic exposures to drifting pesticides as well. They point to the life-damaging long-term physical and economic impacts of these exposures. And in a report done by the California Department of Public Health entitled Agricultural Pesticide Use Near Public Schools in California, which was published in 2014, it was found that one in four school uh, children who go to school in Monterey County go to school within a quarter mile of highly hazardous pesticides. So this was the highest uh, percentage in the state, and it means that around 19,000 students are exposed every year. Um, so this exposure is distributed along racial lines, as Latino children are 320% more likely than white children to go to a school near a heavy pesticides um, use area. Mark Weller, who's the program director for Californians for Pesticide, and Re pesticide Reform, said, Latinos still bear the disparate burden of a pesticide regulatory system more protective of profits than humans. And for Sally, this is a clear, clear case of environmental racism. So what are folks doing about it in Watsonville? Well, one effort is being organized by teachers, and they're organizing through their union, the Pajaro Valley Federation of Teachers, or PBEFT, Local 1936, which is a local of the American Federation of Teachers, AFT, and through the Safe Ag, Safe Schools Working Group. So PVFT is using the position of teachers as workers to fight for improved working conditions and thus learning conditions for their students. In so doing, they're tapping into a long history of using the workplace as a site of collective action for pesticide reform. Some of the first protections um, for workers on pesticides were one in the United Farm Worker Labor Contracts, not in the legislature in California. And in the late 1990s, the Pajaro Valley Unified School District, the whole school district, not just the union, um, which is being active today, uh, ran a campaign against pesticides. And as part of that, families from Pajaro Valley and Salinas uh, filed a complaint with, this, with the EPA, a Title VI complaint, over civil rights violations, alleging discrimination against Latino school children for these exposures. And in a rare win of Title VI cases, um, there's only been a very few of, of thousands of Title VI environmental injustice cases filed with the EPA, the EPA actually decided in favor of these families and said, yes, they need to set up monitoring stations and that Latino school children were having disparate impact. So they set up monitoring stations, but only for methyl bromide, which was phased out in 2015. But it's because of that work and the, and the union's work as well, the PBFT uh, won language in their contract in 2001 to um, mandate that there be notice for everyone in the union of when pesticides would be applied within a certain distance of schools. So that, in combination with other advocacy, led to the ban of methobribe in 2005. So today, teachers and educators, as well as advocates, are taking action by addressing the county agriculture, agricultural commissioners who can decide to make 
uh, buffer zones around farms. It's the decision making is made at a, at a county level, not at a state level. And also putting pressure on the Department of Pesticide Regulation at the state level to uh, come up with more mechanisms for protection. They're demanding one mile buffer zones around schools and one week advance notice of pesticide application. And teachers have come out in force um, wearing surgical masks, gas masks, and holding signs saying students first, not profits, children are not experiments, and one mile buffer, our children should not suffer to many of these events. So clearly using their position as educators and as workers in schools to advocate for this broader community. In addition to advocacy at the local and state level, teachers are conducting and promoting what Jason Corburn calls street science, or science in the, in the hands of ordinary people. So Justin Matlow, who's a special education teacher in the district, and his wife, after learning about the efforts um, with this campaign of other teachers, decided in 2014 that they should be worried about fumigant application in a strawberry field visible from their house. They were also worried for their neighbors. There were 12 children, ranging in ages of three to six, living directly next to the fields, and then over 30 homes within a mile of the property. So he decided to work with the Pesticide Action Network and set up an air monitoring device at his home um, where he would be able to measure the levels of chloropicrin in the air. And the results confirmed his concern. At distances much greater than the state required buffer zones, chloropicrin concentrations were above regulators' levels of health concern and represented a significantly increased cancer risk. In another case, teachers from Hall Elementary School um, have been telling their story to agricultural commissioners of last year being in class and seeing individuals in full body hazard suits spraying an unknown substance in the field directly across from the school. Um, with students about to go out for recess, teachers scramble to alert other classes to keep their students inside and close the windows. And this is only one of three incidences that they reported last year. So in addition to this, um, teachers are also highlighting state findings from, from other state research reports and scientific reports. Uh, at a November Monterey County, at, in a meeting in November at the Monterey County Board of Supervisors, teachers noted that the state's air monitoring studies at Ohlone Elementary School found the fumigant telon in concentrations above US EPA cancer risk levels. And the, just to note, the US EPA cancer risk standard is 10 times more lenient than the European Union standard. Most recently, last week, activists held a news conference in Watsonville um, where they reported findings from a new report out of UCLA, which, in, which indicates a significant increase in cancer risk when any two of three common fumigants are used in combination. And of those top five, frequently it's a, a cocktail of several of them that are used to fumigate the field at one time. So the report concluded that chloropicrin, metam salts, and telon can each attack the body's detoxification mechanisms, leaving the body more vulnerable to harm when exposed to other fumigants simultaneously. So these impacts can be multiplied when you're using multiple fumigants. So how do Sally and how do these organizers and teachers understand the broader form framing of their work? For Sally, she organizes with the campaign because she asks, what is the point of doing nutrition education and helping students lead healthier lives if at the end of the day they're exposed to toxins via their environment that might have lifelong negative detrimental effects for them? She's written about her organizing and also um, about alternative agriculture and models like Swanton Berry Farm, just up the coast, and an example of the first unionized strawberry farm, and I think still only unionized strawberry farm in California, uh, that's also producing organically. And in both organizing against the current pesticide regime and writing about alternatives, she hopes to contribute to a broader audience's understanding of strawberry production through an environmental and food justice framework. She's highlighting the dispropor disproportionate risks 
um, that pesticide drift has on Latino school children and contributes to an understanding that environmental risks and benefits are felt unevenly across our society. In bringing students' stories to the forefront, these workers, teachers, are contributing to a movement for environmental and food justice that seeks to reveal the hidden stories of racialized histories in the food system. So to quote the 1991 First National Environmental Justice Conference uh, Statement of Principles, we the people of color gathered here today at this multinational people of color environmental leadership summit begin to build a national and international movement of all peoples of color to fight the destruction and taking of our lands and communities, to promote economic alternatives which would contribute to the development of environmentally safe livelihoods. So Sally admires the teachers that are working with the union because although she's an after-school educator, she's not part of the Pajaro Valley um, Federation of Teachers. As in their using of the workplace as a site to organize against the continued risks of pesticide drift. And in so doing, they're advocating for improved lives of school children, but also improved livelihoods for workers on the West Coast, for themselves as workers and for a broader set of workers. So it's in this statement that I locate Sally and PVFT local 1936's work. So the second story that I want to share with you is of Sam. And Sam is a community member in Santa Cruz who's concerned about local food security and involved with anti-hunger programs. Recently, she's joined in solidarity to organize with the Watsonville Brown Berets, a militant Latino community organization that supports many local and extra-local social justice initiatives. So she attended a lecture um, in Watsonville just this last fall where Crystal Caballero, the executive director of the Pajaro Valley Loaves and Fishes organization, stated, Watsonville is defined as a food desert because it meets the low income and low access thresholds. At least 33% of the census tract's population live more than one mile from a supermarket or a large grocery store. So she's offering a definition of food security that's focused on physical proximity to food outlets. And she then goes on to describe other barriers. So for farm workers, food insecurity, the food insecurity situation can frequently be very grave. In one study done in 2009 in Salinas Valley, about 66% of farm workers interviewed were food insecure, according to a report by the California Institute of Rural Studies. In a Fresno farm worker food security assessment in 2005, 34% um, of the respondents were food insecure, and an additional 11% were food insecure with hunger, so a more severe version of food insecurity. Above, and these are above the national averages, which places about 17% of adults and 25% of children living in food insecure households. Frequently, farm worker communities in California are, are found to be the populations with the highest degree of food insecurity. And so what do we mean by this term, food insecurity? The term was first used in um, the United Nations World Food Conference in 1974. And it was discussed in relation to a, nation's, a nation, so the, the nation state's ability to feed its population in the face of fluctuating markets, natural disasters, etc. The U.S. government first started to use the term food insecurity or food security in the early 1980s, and policymakers recognized the need not only to address hunger, but also the social conditions that gave rise to it. And this was contesting an individual frame of hunger, so it's not just the physiological experience, but what are the social conditions that produce um, conditions of food insecurity more broadly. Originally, this was lauded by anti-hunger activists, but unlike many other nations who adopted a food security framework, the U.S. did not make a statement about people's right to food. And we'll see that come up in a minute. So for the USDA, food security was defined as a condition in which all people have access at all times to nutritionally adequate food through normal channels. In order to advocate for more grassroots solutions to hunger, Activists formed the Community Food Security Coalition in the mid-1990s, and the community food security movement took off from there. 
activists push for federal funding for community-based efforts to improve their local food environments, not just through federal relief or through emergency food outlets, but through local systems to build food resiliency and self-sufficiency. Many projects orient were oriented towards increasing access points for food purchase or consumption at a reduced cost, like gardens or food trucks, um, a, a variety of projects like that. So less, less emphasis was put on wages as an important element dictating food security. Median income among farm workers, uh, uh, farm worker households nationally is between $7,500 and $10,000 per year. So over 60% of these households are living in extreme poverty. Strawberry workers typically work six months of the year and make anything between $8,000 and $10,000. They then struggle to find work for the remaining months of the year. And farm workers share in common with other, low, uh, with other food workers in the food system uh, this problem of low wages. So nearly 87% of food system workers are making below poverty wages. The US Bureau of Labor Statistics documents that seven out of 10 of the lowest paying jobs are in food processing, distribution, production, and food service. So food security thus can be a lens for understanding a broader process of exploitation and inequality. Brown and Getz argue that in the case of farm workers that food security is produced by the global economic system in which domestic dynamics of food production are embedded. So farm workers are a marginalized workforce and scholars have asked, how has this labor market been built to have this dominant characteristic of food insecurity as entrenched? Brown and Getz argue that immigration and labor policy have been developed to ensure an oversupply and loose protections for agricultural workers. So in relation to strawberry production, I wanna make three points under this thesis. Uh, the first is that the pre-war strawberry industry in California depended heavily on sharecrop labor and primarily from Japanese immigrants. Post-World War II, when folks were released from the internment camps, um, the industry returned to sharecrop labor, but the production relations have shifted. So previously, according to economic geographer Miriam Wells, while um, Previously, the sharecroppers had relative independence. Uh, they had more of a variety of production activities that they were engaged in. They had a higher degree of decision-making power over production and provided many of the non-labor inputs. The new relations post-war were much more controlled, leaving the sharecropper or the share farmer or the share tenant, as they were also called, um, with only the only responsibility of providing manual labor. Sharecropping contracts stipulated that the owner decided the procedures and supplies for labor inputs. In the mid 20th century, most contracts were modeled after a form that was developed by Driscoll Strawberry Association. A Watsonville-based grower shipper company, which was the largest user of sharecroppers in the 1970s. So sharecroppers were defined as independent contractors rather than employees. And this is something we'll return to. And this brings us to the second point, um, which is that labor protections for agricultural workers had long been of little concern to regulators. When the New Deal era um, legislation brought rights to organize and a standard set of labor protections to millions of workers across the country, there were certain classes of labor that were excluded and agricultural workers were one of them. So it wasn't until 1975 in California that the legislature passed the Agricultural Labor Relations Act, which gave agricultural workers the right to unionize and the same protection under the law as other workers. And this was in response to violent repression to worker organizing from growers and was intended to reinstate peace and order in the fields. So it was a mechanism to try to control the growing labor movement and discontent that was happening in the fields. Still with the creation of the ALRB, which oversaw union elections and under unfair labor practice claims, much power was left in the hand of regulators who in the 1980s shifted their attitudes towards a more anti-union, anti-worker stance, leaving what many workers considered to be labor abuses 
relatively unregulated. Worker organizing had reached its height in the 1970s in the strawberry and other fields, and while many important gains were made during that period, much was left to do. And I think that today's food justice movement is trying to pick up on many of those um, same questions now. So in addition to loose labor protections, agricultural production on the Central Coast region has depended on an immigration policy and practice that's provided a relatively consistent oversupply of farm labor. From 1942 to 1965, the Bracero program brought contract workers from Mexico to the U.S. fields on a temporary basis. One on, in, from one account um, from a Central Coast grower, they claimed that nearly 100% of picking hours on the Central Coast from strawberries was done by Bracero workers during this period. So after the program was discontinued in December of 1964, many growers claimed this will be the end of the strawberry industry. We're going to go bankrupt, and um, we, we just won't have the workers necessary to do the work. But many Braceros stayed, and further pathways of immigration without documentation grew over the next many decades. And um, as we have seen, the strawberry industry has continued to grow, and it didn't disappear post-64. So immigration enforcement officers on the Central Coast themselves recognized that undocumented immigrants were, quote-unquote, just a fact of life in California agriculture. The growers depend on them. So Wells reports that there was little actual enforcement that would discourage growers from employing uh, workers without documentation. These factors have led to Brown and Getz, among others, to argue that in California, we've experienced the ideological construction of a racialized agricultural underclass. The significance of border and immigration politics in mobilizing anti-immigrant sentiment and undermining the bargaining power of farm workers cannot be overstated. Immigration policy has historically served as a mechanism not only for managing labor flow, but also for actively producing an other. In this case, a labor force that can be viewed as an undeserving, as undeserving of the rights and benefits afforded to citizen workers, and that can be scapegoated during periods of economic downturn. So there's one other thing. To, but the, the rise of undocumented immigration in the fields on the Central Coast was fueled greatly in the, 18, in the 1980s and 90s. And Anne Lopez, uh, who is a... A uh, farm workers' rights activist and also a professor who works in the region highlights that hunger is at the center of this migratory trend on both sides of the border. Lopez, Lopez documents a rise in migration after neoliberal reforms are instituted in Mexico in the 1980s, after demands are made by the World Bank, IMF, and U.S. lenders to restructure the economy and national governance. These reforms included the privatization of industries, the rollback of social safety net programs, and privatization of communal land holdings, the Hilo uh, communal land holding system, which had been fought and won during the Mexican Revolution and starts to be rolled back, and the end of tariffs on in food imports and price guarantees on corn for rural producers. In 1994, these are exacerbated by more neoliberal reforms with the passage of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and when the Mexican government agrees to phase out restrictions on the import of corn from, U from the U.S., despite the fact that corn has a central place in the Mexican diet and agriculture at that time, and also that corn grown in the U.S. was um, at a price 30% below the Mexican price due to the mass scale of U.S. production and the U.S. subsidy system. So rural farmers increasingly were unable to continue in production, and Lopez documented widespread aguantando hambre, or living with some hunger, during her time in the fields in Mexico um, in the late 1990s and 2000s. Thus, many campesinos, rural farmers, migrated north, becoming waged farm workers on the central coast, many of them, and many, again, struggling with food insecurity in their new home. For Sam and others, the other Watsonville activists, it's not just a question of local marginalization of strawberry workers, but across the industry and across the commodity chain. In April 2015, 
workers in San Quintin Valley in the Mexican state of Baja California erupted into protest, stopping work and in some cases blocking highways in a strike against unjust labor conditions. The workers harvested multiple different crops, but a large number of them specifically picked strawberries and blackberries destined for Berrymax, which is one of the region's larger um, suppliers of Driscoll. So Driscoll, as we already mentioned, is that Watsonville company that was started in 1944. So for nearly two weeks, uh, workers struck demanding higher wages. They were working for roughly $7 a day at this point last year and for legally required benefits. Workers are concerned that the labor laws have little meaning in that region, so rights to things like um, health benefits or protection from sexual harassment are frequently denied and ignored in the fields. Um, many of the Baja workers are indigenous workers from Mexico's poorest states like Oaxaca and Guerrero that have migrated to this region and uh, migrate as well up the coast to uh, engage in strawberry production in various places. So while the strike ended, the deal offered by the growers was not accepted by the workers, and they continued to protest. Their latest effort has been to organize a four-day march, which will be crossing Baja to end in Tijuana, where they'll meet with other farm workers from across the border. And this is being organized for just a few days, from just a couple weeks from now, March 17th to March 20th. And they've put a call out for international solidarity to ask for support from other communities in taking action for justice for all strawberry workers. In addition, on last year, on the anniversary of the death of Mexican revolutionary Emiliano Zapata, the farm workers called for a boycott against Driscoll and all the companies that make a profit explaining their labor. So near Bellingham, Washington, north of Seattle, another organization of farm workers has also called for a boycott. Familias Unidas por la Justicia, a union that was recently formed and represents over 400 pickers, called for a boycott in 2013 of Sakuma Brothers Farms, one of Driscoll's major suppliers from Washington. After the employer withheld pay, provided poor quality worker housing, and retaliated against workers who organized and struck. So workers also note that this company is using the uh, guest worker program from Mexico to replace their workers. So the guest worker program the company is participating in is meant to be used when there are shortages of workers uh, domestically. But FUJ has said that it, there are plenty of willing workers and that the company is bringing in guest workers just to break the strikes and, and break the labor organizing. In 2014, they extended the boycott to Driscoll's and haagen uh, two major buyers of the company's berries. So Community to Community Development, who's the parent organization for FUJ, has supported and worked with immigrant farm workers in their labor struggle, but also to develop worker-owned cooperatives, organize a successful nutrition education program called Cocina Sanas, and to promote domestic fair trade in regional assemblies, meetings, and U.S. Um, uh, US-wide meetings as well. In 2014, C2C and FUJ, so Community to Community, and the, the Union won the US Food Sovereignty Alliance's prize, the Food Sovereignty Prize, which is awarded to grassroots activists working for more democratic food system. Rosalinda, the director, said, in honoring Community to Community, the US Food Sovereignty Alliance honors indigenous farm workers in the US displaced by NAFTA, these peasant farmers from Mexico are practicing a tradition of struggle for justice. Together, C2C and Familias Unidas are promoting food sovereignty in rural Washington state and challenging the corporate agricultural interests that are controlling our food system. So drawing together the experiences of farm workers in Baja, Mexico and in Bellingham, is an assessment that it's not just the grower they need to be targeting, but the next level up on the commodity chain. They're targeting Driscoll, the buyer, the buyer packager, distributor of berries, who has 
power to change the working conditions of their labor. While sharecropping allowed Driscoll to not claim workers as employees in the mid-century, today Driscoll mainly contracts with other growers, claiming that they're not responsible for the wages and working conditions of these employees. In an In These Times article from 2015, author Rachel Lubin quotes Gaspar Riviera, a binational advisor to the Frente Indigena de Organizaciones Binacionales and a researcher with the UCLA Labor Center as describing Driscoll's approach as such. It's more like the Walmart model of shifting the risk to these growers. It has been Driscoll's line, that is, it is not responsible for the working conditions, which is partly true, but partly false. Ultimately, they have a lot of power over these growers because they can say, hey, if you don't shape up and employ workers in a fair way, then we're gonna stop buying. And it's on this line that the organizers in both places, uh, along in Washington and in Mexico, have called for the boycott of Driscoll's The Larger Company to put pressure then on the growers to change. In response to, farm work, in response to this, farm workers have called for international solidarity and organizing across the strawberry commodity chain. This is similar to the coalition of Immokalee workers um, this targeting not just of the growers, but of the large buyers. A labor movement that's not just making uh, demands on direct employers, but on corporate entities higher up the commodity chain. I think this is an interesting shift in, in labor organizing and food justice that we should look to as they're putting pressure on the largest corporate entities within food systems. So on January 2nd, this solidarity came home, and organizers in Watsonville through the Brown Berets and the Sacramento Brown Berets um, organized a picket in front of Mi Pueblo Food Center on Freedom Boulevard, which is right, it's relatively near the Driscoll's headquarters. The, this organizing has just begun, but folks have already held two protests, um, both advocating for people to join the consumer boycott and trying to gain bad publicity for the company in its hometown, and are now organizing a caravan to go to the Baja March, organized by La Alianza de Organizaciones por la Justicia. So for these activists, many frame this cause as part of the fight for food sovereignty, that a consumer boycott is more than just showing action with, with, with what you buy, but is part of a broader vision questioning the power in the production of strawberries in a capitalist economy. Food, food sovereignty is a movement that came out of peasant organizing in the 1980s and 90s um, when folks were seeing worsening, worsening conditions in the rural environment due to neoliberal reforms, like you mentioned, with Mexico, and advocates for food as a right, that they believe that all people have the right to healthy, culturally appropriate food produced in an ecologically sound manner. But what they're mainly concerned with is control and ownership, asking who is determining uh, the decision-making with regards to the food system. So activists resist corporate control and promote democratic decision-making with regards to food production, distribution, and consumption through networks that promote self-reliance, mutual aid, and the value of cultural identities. As such, their work is translocal and multiscalar. The movement is also based on a critique of neoliberal policy which is eliminating autonomy and the capability of communities to access food. So in the US, the US Food Sovereignty Alliance was started in 2008, relatively late in the food sovereignty movement, but to connect organizations and communities fighting these struggles across our country. So in conclusion um, for the story with Sam, I think this is a broader example of a trend within food movements of shifting away from a food security framing that focuses on physical access to food resources or reducing the cost of food resources to a frame of food sovereignty that sees food insecurity as a lens for, under broader, for understanding broader processes of exploitation and inequality. The third story that I want to tell you is of um, Don Emilio. So Emilio is a person uh, who lives in Santa Cruz and has for 40 years now. And he has 
been growing in the Beach Flats Community Garden, what he calls uh, la milpa. And the milpa can look like different things in different places, but for him, it's uh, a rotation of corn and beans. The tallest corn that I've seen in Santa Cruz that reaches up to the second story window on the house next to the garden. And bean varieties that are very difficult to find in local supermarkets. So he describes that the way uh, he plants is the way his father taught him to in uh, rural Mexico, in the state of Durango. So he never went to school, but the fields were his education from the age six onward, he likes to say. With 20 plus other gardeners, all from Mexico and El Salvador, Emilio grows year-round on this 0.6 acres in the Beach Flats garden. Collectively, the gardeners tend to a strawberry patch, and that's in the children's plot. And the, children the children's plot had previously been worked by, by a kids' club that was funded by the city in the 2000s. And then when the city defunded the community center in the late 2000s, the nonprofit that took over their work found that they couldn't financially keep up the kids' club, so the land started to go fallow. But the gardeners collectively worked this plot and keep up the strawberry patch to encourage the children of the community to keep coming in. Um, so the origins of this garden, it was started in the early 1990s when residents in the beach flats organized to address community concerns in a process that transformed the neighborhood, one that had been largely overlooked by city planners and um, by landlords alike. They painted murals, they advocated for the creation of this community programming that led to the club and other things, and they started the garden. So some community advocates remember this time in the early 90s as a period when the neighborhood self-organized to create a safer, healthier place to live in, in this predominantly Latino community. Don Emilio recalls moving to the neighborhood in the early 80s and describes the threats and raids from La Migra uh, immigration enforcement before Santa Cruz passed a resolution making it a sanctuary city in 1985. He now understands the garden as a place of sanctuary after many years of suffering and um, values it for the community in that reason. So the garden was started when the lot that it's currently on the company uh, who owns it, the Seaside Company, had torn down two Victorians that were on this plot and had left it vacant, and it became a dumping ground for many old cars, appliances, etc. It was an unsafe place for children to live. So community activists, along with uh, many older men in the community who came from rural farming backgrounds, came together and started to cultivate on the land. They then went to the company to ask permission and set up a relationship that's lasted over 25 years at this point. So the garden has multiple meanings for the people involved, for the gardeners involved. And I want to read part of a letter to the editor that the gardeners collectively wrote and was just published last week in the paper in Santa Cruz. So this garden is the only green area in the beach flats. We always come here with our friends. We enjoy the camaraderie. For many of the gardeners who work long hours, um, so many of the gardeners work long hours, they're working two to three jobs, uh, the, they're, this is the primary place of reprieve. They say, you can leave work at the end of a day and come here, where there are flowers and corn, where children get along to relax. It's a place where we teach the younger generation how to live, how to grow corn and beans, to focus on something positive and not spend their time using drugs or hurting society. So they grow healthy and strong with good values. Many people bring their children to watch us plant to see how it's done, how to grow chayote, nopales, and traditional corn, beans, and squash. When Angelina leaves work, she goes to the garden with her daughters. While she harvests or plants, the kids have room to play outdoors. Many of our homes have no space for kids to play. Angelina's daughters get particularly excited because they love to help plant and harvest what they've grown. She can teach them how to cultivate like they do in El Salvador. They love the flavors of the vegetables. And they go on to say, if we lost the garden, we'd have to spend a lot more money on food. And that's currently the situation of the garden. It's, it's currently at risk. The land where the garden is located is owned by the Santa Cruz Seedside Company, which is the proprietor of the boardwalk 
and one of the largest companies in Santa Cruz. And they've provided the land at low cost for two decades. Um, the land sits in the shadow of the boardwalk, just two blocks below the rides and entertainment. And it's the largest tourist attraction in town. There's literally tens of thousands of tourists coming through this part of town during the summer. Last March, the Seaside Company announced that this would be the last season for the gardeners. But through eight months of community organizing, marches, media and educational events, and negotiation, the company has now offered a three-year lease for about two-thirds of the garden. But the city passed a resolution in the fall to try to buy the entire property and protect the garden in perpetuity. So that our gardeners and advocates are still pushing for this possibility. The intention to close the garden has roots in a moment shortly after the garden was started. So this isn't the first talk of closing this garden. According to interviews with former city officials, in the mid-1990s, the Seaside Company had plans, um, had proposed plans to the city to completely shift the character of the Beach Flats neighborhood. They had plans to move the Third Street, Third Street, uh, which borders the garden on the north, and uh, their plans were to move the road into where the company is now trying to keep that particular part of the garden. Um, and their desire to move Third Street was based on trying to open up more space close to the river for parking, for commercial development, for expansion of new rides, all of which was happening in the late 1990s at that time. And this wasn't just the, uh, the plan of the company. Uh, the Santa Cruz municipal government was very supportive of this plan at that time. And they wrote a, a beach area lower laurel plan where they say, today Beach Flats is one of the most densely populated poorest neighborhoods in the city of Santa Cruz. It's one of the major goals of this planning effort to provide recommendations for a practical and comprehensive neighborhood revitalization program. And what that revitalization looked like initially in the program was getting rid of most of the residential zoning and increasing commercial zoning for the Beach Flats area. So they said one of the indicators for the need for revitalization that the city used was the drop in home ownership. In 1960, there was a 70% home ownership in the Beach Flats area. And by 1997, less than 1% of homes were owner occupied. In the 80s and 90s, the Beach Flats residents um, that moved in were, for the most part, and continue to be, low-income, first- and second-generation Latino migrant families who rent. So today, the Seaside Company owns the majority of properties in the surrounding Beach Flats, and uh, its history of working with the city on neighborhood redevelopment has many worried uh, about what this move to take the garden land might need for a next wave of revitalization or redevelopment, as, as it's being called. So now, over two decades later, the neighborhood is beginning to change. Recently, plans have been approved to tear down existing housing, put in a large conference hotel, new condos have gone up around the corner, and three large mur murals that were created in the 1990s, the last remaining public Latino heritage murals and public art in Santa Cruz, were recently painted over in favor of a more up-to-date and universally appealing style. So I want to take just a brief moment to describe what happened with these murals, the, the largest of which was painted in 1992 by a community active or a, a community youth, um, Victor Cervantes, with the participation of many other in the community, many others in the community, and depicted scenes of Zapata, of Chicana organizing, of farm worker organizing, and um, had a very special value for many in the community. And in 2013, the city started a process to decide what to do with this mural, because it had been several decades and it was falling into disrepair. They decided it was too expensive to restore it. And so they hired a muralist to do some community outreach. And she made an effort, um, but not very much. And then the city came in relatively quickly and, and painted over the mural in white. So they whitewashed this very large community mural um, and, and uh, 
community residents came out and tried to physically get in the way and say, you can't take this piece of art away from our community. Um, and a, a little old woman actually stepped in front of the Virgin Guadalupe when they got to her and said, mm -mm, that's the line, you're not crossing it. Um, so the city, the, the artist actually sued the city with the community's help and uh, they had to offer an official apology and pay $30,000 and an hour engaged in a more community-driven process to decide what kind of art will replace the mural. But while this was happening, there were two other smaller murals right nearby that uh, just a few weeks after the decision that the city was going to pay $30,000 and offer an apology were vandalized and painted over, along with many of the signs in Spanish in the neighborhood. And um, when I went out and participated in the repainting of one of these murals, a community resident who had moved in within the last five years came out and said, we don't want you to repaint this. This isn't the kind of art we want in our community. This is offensive to the new people coming in. It was an, it, it was an image of the Virgin Guadalupe, um, another image. And, and so it, this represents sort of the cultural struggle that's occurring in the beach lots right now as well. And many are asking, is this now the beginnings of a more rapid gentrification process for the beach flats? Santa Cruz was just named the seventh hottest housing market in the United States, and it brings up the question, how do communities and gardens persist within or resist these competitive land markets? And I know this is a big question in the Bay Area, and many urban gardens are dealing with this question, and also with the question of ecological gentrification and what role do gardens play in the changing nature of neighborhoods, which I'm not gonna talk about now, but I'm happy to talk to you with folks after the talk. So this brings us to the issue that these are essentially different visions for the land in relationship to these communities. It has community, Santa Cruz residents asking, how should we lose, use land or how should land be used? Who has the right to decide the use and allocation of urban space? So for the gardeners, while they've recognized that this is not their property, um, at the same time, they've repeatedly raised objections to the idea that the company should have sole decision-making power over the future of the land. Rigo, one of the gardeners, asks, why didn't they want the land before when it was in disrepair? Why are they coming back now after the community has poured more than 25 years of labor and love into this piece of land? Emilio has pointed out that they have so much other land that, they, that this, the gardeners have collectively worked this land for community good and that's what should be important. In October, I took part in bringing a group of elementary school students from the Corre La Voz program to the garden. And after they did research on Mesoamerican agriculture, they, they um, did interviews with Don Emilio and others. And I think that their quotes are, are illustrative of a level of creativity and conviction in protecting the garden that many adults in the effort to try to save the garden haven't held. So Don Emilio, this is one of the quotes. Don Emilio and the others have worked here most of their life, and all that hard work is going to go down the drain if you take it away. Would you like it if somebody took away something that you've worked for for your whole life? That's in a letter to the Seaside Company that the student wrote. Another one wrote, I don't want them to shut down the garden. I think the community should have the final decision on what happens to the garden. And a third says, to the company again. We don't believe that you will leave a little space. We're worried that you'll take everything from our community. I think you're being unfair because you're taking a garden when you have other choices. They need that place to meet in the neighborhood. Let the farmers keep all of their land. So activists in town have also um, come to this movement. It's not just the gardeners fighting, but a broad coalition of folks within the Santa Cruz community supporting the gardeners to keep this land. And they've come to this struggle for many different reasons with different motivations. One of um, the reasons is a discontentment with the degree of power that the Seaside Company has within local politics and within local land use and decision making that they've developed over the last century of being in Santa Cruz. So students in the last March held a banner as they walked down the street that said, students for the expropriation of Seaside's accumulated wealth. And um, 
you know, well, that's a, that's a particular framing that they're engaging in. Uh, many have gotten behind this and are pushing for the city to use eminent domain to take the piece of land. And it's actually become one of three major, major issues that's going to be uh, that the new progressive um, group that's trying to organize for the elections in Santa Cruz in the fall is pushing forward. So there's a real hope that if a new city council is elected or four new members to the city council, then they'll take a stance against the company and use eminent domain to take the piece of land without their willingness. So others have framed this in, in addition in the framing of food sovereignty. For volunteer uh, Lisette Orzorco, who's from, originally from Mexico City, she explains why she brings her daughters to the garden, that there are other farms and gardens in Santa Cruz, which is known for alternative agriculture, um, but not like this one not with this Mesoamerican culture and agriculture. She points to the knowledge and seed varieties that these farmers have brought with them as essential for teaching agroecology to the next generations. What this brings up also is that this isn't a, just a question of food sovereignty, but of land sovereignty as well. The U.S. Food, the, the Garden participated in U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance's Land and Resource Grab Working Group Month of Action, which was organized for October. And this was a month of community power to reclaim the, the commons, which spotlights the local community's resistance to the privatization of food, water, land, oceans, and the greater commons. So an estimated 20 different actions took place across the country. And what does the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance have to say about the commons? They've said this. The commons, land, water, seeds, and open space are being privatized at an alarming rate. Large-scale corporate entities and government policies are squeezing out community voice and input into the use of most of our precious resources. Farmers are losing control over productive resources and rights to save, exchange, and share those resources. Fishermen have increasingly limited access to water. Community gardens are cleared for expensive housing and commercial development projects. And farmers from other countries are often forced to migrate to the U.S. to work for food and, as food and farm workers. The damaging impact of privatization and resource consolidation in communities of color is an affront to human rights everywhere, and racism must be challenged through the movement to protect the commons. Connecting struggles seeking to change land and fishery use and ownership is critical for building just, sustainable local food economies and ending hunger and poverty. So one participant of the second National People of Color Environmental Leadership Conference of Environmental Justice Practitioners in 2012, Devin Pena, argued, the environmental justice movement can support local struggles to establish frameworks for local participation and control of management of agricultural lands. It's important to promote a movement that focuses not just on the restoration of land rights, but equally important, the recovery of traditional systems of local natural resource management to support sustainable agriculture in indigenous, and, um, in indigenous communities. The environmental justice movement must continue to support campaigns that link policy for the restoration of, of indigenous land and traditional resource rights within the theory and practice of sovereignty. There can be no sustainable agriculture without cultural survival and political autonomy. Kenya's vision of indigenous autonomous food systems moves the environmental justice movement beyond a narrow definition of food security, which treats food as a nutritional commodity, towards a broader ideal of food sovereignty. And so the Beach Flats Community Garden is an example of working towards food sovereignty, the democratic control of food systems, but also land sovereignty, or what many are calling the right to the city in urban, so in urban areas, um, a coalition of urban movements that are concerned with dem democratic control of land resources and the processes of urbanization. Both sets of movements are looking at how do we radically dem uh, democratize power in society across an industry or a geographic area. So in conclusion, I've told you three stories. Um, the first was of Sally and her work to reduce the risks that children she teaches face from pesticide drift by planting seeds of alternative production ideas in her after-school programming 
and by working with teachers in a social movement unionism effort to restrict pesticide drift near schools. She works to build, in multiple places, a political ecological imaginary working against pesticide risks. The second was of Sam, an activist in Santa Cruz and Watsonville, concerned about both the conditions of food insecurity and how conditions of workers more broadly construct a sociocultural environment where hunger persists. She moves beyond a policy-based understanding of food security towards a social movement frame of food sovereignty in her support of the Driscoll's consumer boycott and the fight to reassert the need for self-determination and autonomy in food production and consumption. And the final story was of Emilio, a farmer practicing agroecological traditions in a new context, fighting for access to land and livelihood and asking the question, who has the right to self-determination and spatial production, the production of urban space. So these three stories began with the strawberry, but highlight the broader aims of these communities of action who are, are part of frames of food movements. How we understand the problems in our food system directly impacts how we think about the solutions. And these communities help us ask, what political ecological imaginaries are necessary to ensure more just, sustainable, and hopeful food systems or societies at large? They show us that making change is not just about how we can be better food consumers, but how to be better participants in building movements for change. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, Find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs. <laughs>